In March 2020, India went into a nationwide lockdown with barely a few hours of notice. This threw several thousand migrant workers into an acute crisis with very little time to prepare. The Stranded Workers Action Network, or SWAN, was an initiative that sprung in response to this acute crisis faced by migrant workers. SWAN is a volunteer-driven effort that helped migrant worker groups and their families access immediate help in the form of cash, rations, and other essentials by connecting them with civil society organizations, NGOs, and volunteers who are nearest to them. In today's episode, we are joined by Professor Rajendran Narayanan, who was instrumental in forming SWAN and coordinating its activities for over a year now. Professor Rajendran is a faculty member at the Azim Premji University in Bangalore and works with a network of researchers and activists from various civil society organizations in several states in designing and developing bottom-up Janta information systems that can be used for continuous monitoring of government programs and social audits. He is interested in understanding what the proliferation of data and over-reliance on technological processes mean for development and participatory democracy. In this episode of Technology Together, we speak with Professor Rajendran on his work on the Janta Information Systems as well as SWAN to discuss the role of technology for inclusive development. Welcome to Technology Together, a podcast from IIIT Bangalore that dives headfirst into the complex world of digital technologies. On this podcast, we critically engage with the social, political and cultural factors that shape the design and utility of digital tech. After a short break, we're back with season two of the podcast. This season will be a mini series of five episodes focused on COVID-19, where we bring to you engaging critical discussions on the many ways in which digital technologies have shaped our lives during this past year. We will be joined by experts in information systems, economics, law, public policy, and public health to reflect on the role that technology has played during the pandemic. So let's begin by discussing your work on the Janta Information Systems. How did you conceptualize this? And do you see this as something different from other kinds of information systems that we see that have been introduced with a promise to bring transparency in government schemes and programs? Thanks, Shravya, for having me over for this discussion. So yeah, I think I'll begin by saying that the main idea behind this entire area of work emerged because a friend of mine called Vivek, who was the first national convener for the Right to Food campaign. And this is, I'm talking about early 2000s. This is Mm -hmm. before the promulgation of various rights-based legislations that happened in mid-2000s, from 2005 onwards. So I think in that period, that's when the Right to Food campaign had its birth. That's when the RTI movement was uh, gaining a lot of traction. And one of the things that emerged through that period was that RTI happened. And simultaneously, what happened was social audits became mandatory in the National Rural Employment Guarantee Act and several other legislations as well that followed. So one of the things that was critical was that, okay, there is information now available for various public programs, but is the information available in a manner that is easily digestible for people on the ground who are the main rights holder? In fact, I would use the term rights holder instead of beneficiaries for the, for the important reason that these are rights-based legislation where the centrality needs to be given to the person who's accessing these rights. The moment we say use the term beneficiary, there is a change in the way the programs are perceived and and practiced. So having said that, it was important to have an intervention to think through these important details about how do we make information accessible to people in a manner 
that they can then use that information for further public action engagement, become potentially more engaged citizens of the country and also more engaged in their conversations with the state. Otherwise, it continues to be a very top-down program implementation strategy that we've seen over the years. So this is how the birth happened in the sense that Vivek and I were discussing sometime in around 2010 or so that there is a lot of information on NAREGA, National Rural Employment Guarantee Act, that's available online. But it's available in a manner which is very complex. The worker has to understand whether her payment has come. She has to go through some five or six different reports. And it's practically impossible to expect a worker to navigate the web in the man- navigate the web in the first place and also navigate the web of information that's present in Narega. So that's when we thought that we need to find ways to play an intermediary role wherein we can see, we can try and see how we can facilitate easier ways of creating information and formats that can be used by people on the ground. That said, I think even now we are still far away from anywhere near uh, the point where actually workers can use this information effectively. We still have to work with various civil society organizations that work on the ground and work with the civil society organizations in creating these kind of formats and templates. I would like to articulate one more thing is uh, one of the things that emerged through discussions with say the Mazdoor Kisan Shakti Sangathan is that there is a difference between Suchna and Jankari. Suchna is just dry information. Jankari is actionable information. So one can package the entire thing as how do we convert Suchna to Jankari? I think that's the way it started. And from about 2011 or so, we've been working in multiple states now, Rajasthan, Jharkhand, Bihar, Odisha, and Chhattisgarh as well. So we've worked in multiple states over the years with various civil society organizations and national campaigns. I see. I think it's very useful how even in the start, you differentiate the language that we use to describe some of these things in terms of calling a rights holder beneficiary and how the two terms can differently mean something when we're talking about information access. So uh, as you said, since over the last 10 years, having engaged in the process of developing this bottom-up information system, how do you see as the role of technology in addressing concerns of democracy and development? Uh, Huge, actually. Technology has become a very, very central aspect in program implementation in many places. I'd uh, like to recall a conversation I had with an Adivasi woman worker from Palamu district in Jharkhand. This is a few years ago and uh, we, it was a very hot summer day and uh, she was just taking some time off after working for four hours at the Narega worksite and I happened to be there and we were sitting in the shade and we had this long conversation ranging from a lot of things from the role of government to politics to everything and Finally, I asked her a question. I mean, our conversation ranged for about 30, 40 or even longer, 30, 40 minutes or even longer. And then I asked her a question in Hindi and paraphrasing it roughly in English, it will translate to the fact that, okay, there's a lot of information now available for Narega on a computer. Now, do you think that it's good for you or is it bad for you? So she had a very deep answer. She said, she she, she waited, she thought for a bit. And then she said that, uh, You know, computer is after all made by people like you and me. So if we want it to have principles that's going to be an enabler, we can make it happen. But if the person sitting behind the computer doesn't want, then it will never happen. And that's a very important insight, which also very closely ties in with uh, the Harvard professor Lawrence Lessig's formulation of Mm -hmm. code is law, 
what happens when software code starts superseding legal code, right? The two things are very similar. So what is happening in many places is that in many instances, administrators are trying to think of technology as a panacea for governance. Technology has become the substitute for governance in many respects. And that's a problem. Technology can be a very powerful aid, a supporter, an enabler, but it cannot become the, the central tool for governance. Governance, the centrality of governance comes from what we need for the rights holder to get within a stipulated amount of time. That should be the centrality of entire discussion. And it's very hard to code fairness and justice into a computer or any kind of tech platform. Whereas mm -hmm. technology can be very good as far as administrative efficiency is concerned. So that's, that's pretty much what we see if we take again the example of Narega. Narega is a very good example for us to go back to because it's a very complex information system. It's a very complex program. There's a lot of reliance on technology, but the entire thing is reliant on the management information system, which is trying to do multiple things. It's trying to do the uh, system, which is going to be useful for the administration as far as administrative efficiency is concerned. It's also the sole repository of information about the entire program. And it's also meant for the workers to access information about their own things from the program. So it's trying to do so many different things at the same time that it's one of the biggest sacrifices that's happened in the process is the lack of accountability of people in the chain of implementation of the program. So there is downward accountability, but there is no upward accountability. And what I mean by that is that the interface for the worker with the state administration is the computer operator, is the panchayat rozga sahayak or the field assistant as they call it in Andhra. The higher level bureaucracy is not answerable to the worker at all. Whereas technology control is lying entirely with the higher level bureaucracy. There's absolutely no control of the technology by the interface, which is the field functionaries. So the field functionaries feel powerless and the workers are not able to get their grievances resolved. They are not answerable to the workers. So in this entire chain, the centralization has had a very pernicious effect on program implementation, I'd say. So it plays a huge role, but there are good examples also. For example, Rajasthan government has come up with this one portal called Jansuchna portal, which is one place where information about more than 124 public schemes are available. And the entire design of the Jansuchna portal has emerged through constant dialogue, through a process called digital dialogue, which has emerged okay. through constant conversation between the Rajasthan state government and various civil society organizations working on various issues. So, for example, there is information on silicosis, which is a kind of disease that affects people when they work in mines. Now, mm -hmm. information about those things, what kind of information is important? What should be the format of display of this information? That entire thing has emerged from civil society organizations that are working on that aspect. And the Rajasthan state administration has been an enabler in the sense what it has done is it has taken the formats that have been arrived at from the civil society organization and the state government has implemented those formats in a portal. So I think that is a good example of uh, how technology can play an enabling role through constant discussions with civil society actors working on the ground. I see. Right. I think it's useful to think of these examples to show the different ways in which intent reflects in the design of the technology itself. Right. And it's also evident that as you've worked over the years 
on the ground in rural development over the years last year in march 2020 when we saw the pandemic sort of rapidly spreading across india how did you think of responding to the crisis of migrant workers which was a development crisis but also of a very different kind and how did you see some of your earlier experiences and earlier work sort of help you think about that immediate response and eventually also building this network that is the stranded workers action network yeah so i think first things first when the lockdown was announced in march 2020 there were just a few hundred cases all over india so i think it was a very ill planned lockdown by the union government there was no necessity to lockdown an entire country at that time that's number 1 number 2 it was as i said it was extremely hasty rushed and again a very top down way of doing things number 2 is that there was only 4 hours notice given so people were not in a position to to figure out what to do number 3 is that there was no security for workers who were stranded in different places everything became an afterthought the lockdown was announced and then once the people once the workers started walking on highways that's the, that's when the union government woke up and said oh okay we need to provide food oh we need to provide money because 90% of india's workforce which is we are talking about 350 million people or 400 million people they are informal workforce who live on a day to day basis so that's the context in which this entire uh, need thing needs to be understood there was no need for a, a national lockdown at that time mm-hmm. that said So on the twenty sixth of March, twenty fourth of March, twenty twenty was when the lockdown was announced. Twenty sixth of March, one of our friends called Sanjay Sahni, who uh, runs a fantastic organization called Samaj Parivartan Shakti Sangathan in Muzaffarpur in Bihar, mm-hmm. uh, he reached out to us. Now that organization itself has thousands of workers who have been fighting to access their rights on things like Narega, ration, pension, and other social security programs. So Sanjay uh, reached out to us and. Uh, as an aside i think sanjay himself is a very remarkable example of how he has harnessed technology in building an entire organization so i think that's a separate that's a, that's a separate conversation to be had about sanjay and maybe sanjay himself should talk about it but uh, that that said i think on on the 26th of march sanjay reached out to one of us and uh, said that okay there are these a few workers from known to him or known from his area who are stranded in mangalore and mm-hmm. uh, they need assistance with money because they don't have any food to eat they don't have any money left so that's when one of us reached out to the group in mangalore and we sought basic information as to how many of you are there because if we need to transfer money we need to know how much money to transfer if we need right. to arrange for rations we need to know those details so soon we realized that okay uh, there were about five or six people so there was some cash that we arranged among themselves and we sent it through google pay then sanjay started sending us more information about more groups of workers stranded in different places because news spread like wildfire when this group in mangalore heard that okay they got support other friends of theirs in stranded in other parts of the country they reached out to sanjay again and then sanjay started playing this important role of being a channel to connect us with workers who are we at that time that time there was just few of us who just quickly realized that okay we need to get together and uh, do some just basic humanitarian support that was a need of the hour and uh, then we realized okay the scale is huge within about 3 4 days given the number of calls that started pouring in from sanjay and some other friends we realized that uh, we need to quickly put in very robust structures 
otherwise mm-hmm. we will not be able to handle it it's going to be a massive crisis and uh, i think that was something that worked really well in the sense that we realized okay we need to put in we created uh, spreadsheets we created a, a google form whenever we got a request about a distress situation for a group of workers we started mm-hmm. collecting information about them in a very systematic way we created a google form where we had a bunch of questions where we said okay how many of you are there how many days of food do you have left with you how much money do you have left with you what is the health condition do you have any health problems what is the exact location do you have women and children those kind of things we were seeking information and which we called assessing needs or needs assessment form and uh, so the structure that we created maybe i think it's time i'll just briefly describe what the structure of how this one um, structure of documenting this information started so mm-hmm. now once we created this needs assessment form before this each time any of us got information about some group of workers stranded anywhere in a spreadsheet we called it the first information sheet wherein we okay. just put in bare bones information as to okay uh, let's say rajendran got a call from uh, asadullah struck in hosur rajendran would just say that okay uh, asadullah this is asadullah's number these are the number of people with asadullah and okay. asadullah is stranded in hosur in tamil nadu so that information is logged in the first information sheet parallelly what we did is that we started we started sending out appeals for volunteers and uh, the alumni network of apu played a huge huge role there very mm-hmm. quickly as in premji university alumni got into and even current students at that time they got into the fold we got a lot of students and ex students from apu to to be volunteers for this exercise very quickly we had to create zonal teams depending on the language ability so we created a separate volunteer form where we sought information about volunteers about where they are based how much time they can give in a day uh, what languages are they proficient in and what other things would they be interested in doing uh, we got a pool of volunteers created a separate form that we sent out to people soliciting funds because this had to be crowdsourced two three people five people cannot be dealing with the crisis of this magnitude as far as money is concerned so we mm-hmm. solicit we, we we created a form that we sent out to initially we just sent out to our friends network soliciting funds and the it was not directly that you give money to us because we don't have a bank right. account we are not registered we just created a form where we said okay can, how much amount can you pledge so that right. information comes in now once the first information sheet which has all the details about how many workers are stranded where and we started also procuring information from various social media whether it is uh, whatsapp groups whether it is facebook etc we started mm-hmm. proactively collecting those information and putting it on our first information sheet and okay. once we got the pool of volunteers we created zonal teams and within each zone we created a shift system because if we had let's say 10 people for south zone mm-hmm. we said okay mm-hmm. 9 to 12 x will work 12 to 3 someone else will work so from 9 am till okay. about 9 pm we had a pool of people mm-hmm. doing it so mm-hmm. um, after the needs so that pool of people would then see what is there on the first information sheet call the the respective standard group of workers and then mm-hmm. assess the needs so the volunteers assessment of needs would be uh, it's a google form so it gets stored in a mm-hmm. separate it uh, gets uploaded in a spreadsheet uh, in the back end and then there was a separate team which would look at where they are stranded and look at the needs assessment and decide how to arrange for rations for that group 
whether yeah. the group needs money if the group needs money the finance team would arrange for would pair up the group that needs money with the person who's pledged the amount to donate so the right. finance team will act only as an uh, as a, act as a link between the two people the group that wants to give money and the group that wants to that needs money so right. the entire thing was set up in this manner so i think technology played a huge role in this right now absolutely and it's because of the the work that we've been doing over the years that uh, we've been plugged in with various civil society organizations across the country as part of the right to food campaign is that if there is a stranded group let's say stuck somewhere in vishakhapatnam group mm-hmm. of workers we know exactly there was another team that we said okay you create a list of civil society organizations that are doing supplying rations in different parts of the country what is their contact number create a list and put it up so that the the, the team that is doing the needs assessment and after that can directly talk to the civil society partners and arrange for food rations that need to be sent so i think right. uh, it's because of this organizational with the right to food campaign etc that we had the network of so many organizations across the country and who really rose to the occasion as far as doing this in a timely manner is concerned right uh, i think uh, it's very useful to understand how the entire sort of network began and sort of coordinated its activities into a systematic fashion in those initial days and i have a couple of questions to follow up on some of the things that you said so firstly you mentioned assessing the needs of the worker groups and their families to understand if they needed rations or other kinds of supply or cash and that reminded me of one of the things as once for earliest reports i think it was called 21 days and counting mm-hmm. mentioned how it was food and cash and not food or cash and i wanted to understand why that was an important distinction that was sort of called out in the report it was very important because i think uh, there were multiple petitions also going on in the supreme court around the migrant worker crisis and uh, one of the things that many people and later on i think i'm forgetting the exact sequence but at some point the the then chief justice of india also made a comment said that if they get food twice a day why do they need money so the government latched on uh, the this line of the then chief justice of india was very much in consonance with the way the union government was doing its relief measures if you remember the first package was only about giving rations giving into dry rations all ration card holders dal was given which is which is not bad at all it's it's good it's important but more needed to be done for example many people they had dry rations they had rice but they didn't have money for gas they didn't have money to recharge their phones they didn't have money to buy even crocin if someone felt sick and if the entire reason for a lockdown was a pandemic and the fear of catching disease etc the least that the union government or the supreme court should have intervened and done is made sure that the union government transfers money to the accounts of people so that money is used for basic things and at that time there was a big deal that you have to wash your hands with soap you have to use sanitizers 20 20 times a day and so on and so forth it was the entire language was keeping in mind the middle and the upper classes there was absolutely no consideration given to the marginalized and the poor if they don't have money where are they going to get sanitizers masks and soap from correct 
So right. it was very clear that food is required for subsistence. But if you want to even go marginally beyond subsistence, you need money. So uh, it, it was a huge failure on the part of the union government not to have started cash transfers. And when the union government is so gungo and gaga about oh, look at us, look at our digital infrastructure. We can, with a push of a button, we can do so many things. When the actual crisis time came, there was complete silence and not just silence. There was, I would say, apathy and gross injustice in the way it was done. So I think it's very clear that food is important, but at the same time, you can't even cook without money. And, right. and even if you want to buy vegetables, where do you right. get, you need to buy vegetables to eat. Yeah, thanks so much for pointing out some of those things. I mean, we would hope that we've learned from earlier experiences of people struggling during such short notice sweeping changes, let's say from times like demonetization, but perhaps that wasn't really the case. Uh, one of the other things that I also wanted to go back to is on the one hand, you pointed out how when help from Swan's efforts started coming in, the news spread very quickly. And on the other hand, you also said that a lot of the measures that were coming in from be it state or the union governments was mostly hasty and only in response to sort of wide news coverage, right? So um, in that case, when the situation kept evolving in terms of government announcements of relief and welfare measures, how did you see migrant worker networks keeping up with the kind of um, important information that kept rolling out over the days. I think the report again mentioned that local networks were important, but I was also wondering if there are other ways or mechanisms on which workers tend to rely. Even for instance, as the lockdown rules kept changing after the initial couple of weeks. Yeah, so there were many, many changes that kept happening and it was very difficult to keep pace with the changes, even for us who have so much of access. Uh, so it was, you can imagine, it was monumentally more challenging for many of the migrant workers who were stranded. Now, mm -hmm. some of them, I think, were able to, for example, there were state governments that initiated cash transfers to workers from that state, from their state who were stranded in different parts of the country. So, for example, Jharkhand government, Bihar government, West Bengal and Arunachal, if I remember right, these four state governments definitely initiated cash transfer programs to, let's say, if you're a worker from Bengal who's stranded in Karnataka, you, mm -hmm. if you're able to identify yourself that you are from Bengal, that you have a bank account in Bengal, then the Bengal government would transfer money to your bank account. So many state governments initiated some of these programs and that network the way workers from their own state so they learned about these programs from their own networks in their states it was not that swan played a huge role in communicating all this we did play some role in terms when the volunteers were discussing that oh okay you're from jharkhand so the jharkhand state government has initiated this you can call this toll-free number to get more information so but our reach was only limited to the set of workers we were talking to interacting with but many were able to get this information from their own state networks. That happened. Now, when the travel orders started, that was when another complete set of mess was created because the workers would go to a place and they would have to wait for long, long hours and then realize that, okay, there are no trains functioning. Uh, your turn will not come today. They had to go to the police station and register and mm -hmm. they had to be at the mercy of when the police officers would call them 
saying that okay your turn has come now you go so they had to be constantly ready that any time they can get a phone call from the police station if they wanted to go back home so there was a lot of anxiety that the entire thing created and even so linguistic anxiety right so let's say if you're from bengal and if you're stranded in karnataka many uh, police officials would not be able to speak hindi or any other language they are fluent in kannada but the workers are not able to speak kannada so there was this linguistic barrier also that was a huge problem for many many workers in different parts of the country especially in the south that was a huge problem and so at that time did some of the requests that volunteers at swan were getting was to perhaps be an intermediary in translating and communicating some of their requirements let's say to officials like the police not so much i would say no okay but okay. because swan was keeping close tabs on what these travel orders were mm-hmm. we would be able to communicate to many of the workers when they reached out or so on so we would say that okay please go to this police station because you're here uh, those mm-hmm. kind of support we were able to provide yeah keeping in mind the migrant worker as being the end user like you mentioned there were several announcements that kept sort of evolving over the days and we also saw some state governments launching information portals like the delhi government had the jeevan seva app i think bihar and jharkhand had the sahayata app so given that migrant workers were a prominent category of end users for these sort of interfaces what is your assessment of such app based and web based initiatives that we saw roll out at that time see the, some of them were useful i would not say that they were useless but there were also challenges i think given that it was very early stages of the pandemic we also interacted with the national disaster management authority we also interacted with various state governments and one of the things that we were constantly trying to uh, advocate was that there are problems with these apps in the sense many people didn't have internet packs on their phone right mm-hmm. so this all these the precondition is that you need to have a smartphone a you need to have again money to be able to put in those internet packs in your smartphone and the stability of many of these apps were very questionable for example in situations when people had to send their let's say for a cash transfer program you had to send a photograph you had to take a selfie and there were specifications mm-hmm. of what size your photo should be uh, in terms of size in terms of uh, megabytes and so on and it you had to send it you had to upload it somewhere and your photo the selfie that you take has to match with the photo on your aadhar card only oh, then if all these things go through then you will be able to access the cash transfer from those state governments now these are very tall asks we all know how our faces look in id cards now if we have to match our selfie with how our photos look in id cards especially many of them didn't have a beard when they took the photo in the id card now they have grown a beard so it's 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 very difficult so there are many cases where people tried their level best but they still couldn't access it also the size specification right if you say it has to be in high resolution now their phone might not support a high resolution photo mm-hmm. the kind of resolution that is required for a successful transfer of this nature so considering all this all these apps were useful in the some sense that for those who worked it's fine but there were no alternatives any and this is a huge problem in most public program implementation in the country that any kind of tech system becomes your only option for most people there are no alternatives if there are no alternatives you're talking about large scale exclusion correct 
So at that time, we, we were trying to say that, okay, why don't you open up public spaces? There are so many public spaces in the country, so many grounds, malls and cities, open it up so that people can do a physical registration in those places. And then those things become easier, have kiosks. And we had created some kind of a standard operating procedure on how to make that happen in different places. We also calculated how many spaces would be required given, we did some estimation calculations as well. But of course, mm-hmm. all of that fell into deaf ears, nothing really worked. Right. It seemed like the governments were primarily relying on providing some of these support systems remotely and whether it was in terms of uploading pictures and calling and verifying over phone. Were there other ways in which migrant workers were expected to prove their migrant status in order to access some of these rights that they were entitled to? Yes, they had to prove in the sense they had to say that, okay, they had to give the base location. Uh, where they are stranded and they had to show that again the the proof only relied on their id card matching etc now as far as i see your question yes question is whether let's say if it's a person from jharkhand who is in jharkhand was that person utilized or misusing this kind of a, a support that let's say the jharkhand government created i don't think that kind of misuse we were able to understand the document but we were only dealing with those migrants who were stranded in a different state so i think in the kind of a crisis there would be inclusion errors for sure which is people who are in their own home state are perhaps trying to access that money that is possible i'm not saying that didn't happen but i think primacy as always in these kind of situations should be given to minimizing exclusion errors so i'm not sure if different state governments cared so much about inclusion errors at that time but i see there were helpline numbers also created and if these things failed you could call a helpline but most of the times i think they were also completely burdened in terms of how many calls they were getting on their helplines it was enormous and i think important thing to remember here is that the state governments weren't consulted at all before the lockdown by the union government had the state governments been consulted even given maybe a week or 10 days to prepare things mm-hmm. would have been very, very different. We wouldn't have seen that kind of a crisis. But even the state governments were caught off guard here. So it won't be completely fair to blame the state governments for not being able to create solutions in such a quick time. Right. And as you said, like the volume of calls that volunteers it's one would have gotten in those initial weeks would have been fairly high. Following that, how did you see the sort of need for support and help increase and sort of reduce over time? And what really happened again during, let's say, March 2021, March, April, when we saw a second wave sort of coming up again? Right. So in the first wave, I think uh, the calls were high volume throughout April, May and even till some point in June. Yeah, because the, the nature of the crisis changed. April and to some extent mid-May was largely food and cash and then the whole travel saga started. So we had mm-hmm. to almost become like travel agents in the in the second half of the lockdown last year. Uh, so the call volumes didn't really reduce. It started reducing only towards the middle or end of June last year to 2020 mm-hmm. when people, many of them started going back home, they went back home and after that mm-hmm. slowly things started opening up. So that's when it happened this year again it started from april because once again some of us started getting calls from different workers saying okay 
via standard we need food and money but this time of course the crisis was largely a healthcare crisis because the spread happened in phases initially it was maharashtra that had that was deeply impacted by the health crisis and then then it went to delhi and then it came down south to karnataka the three regions where you have maximum presence of migrant workers so i think the localized nature of the second wave and there was a temporal shift between the time periods at which the waves happened that was slightly different and once again the second wave was when actually a national lockdown or some kind of local lockdown would have made more sense with cash transfer to workers but that didn't happen now the states were left to their own devices however the states right. didn't respond once again except i think maharashtra government did better than many other governments this time but once again in april end we, the whole thing started food and uh, the same old problem like last year food and money requirement and it continued for about a month month and a half but right. it was spread out in the sense it started off in maharashtra then peaked in delhi uh, when it was peak in delhi we didn't have calls from karnataka so the rotation process of the the pandemic itself was uh, what do i say a shock observer of sorts as far as this crisis was concerned i see right and one of the other things i also want to bring up is while swan was primarily a humanitarian effort that came up in response to an acute crisis that unfolded very quickly one of the things swan has also done over the year is also put out data based on whatever information uh, you've been collecting and and whatever data points you've been able to sort of put together why was this a conscious effort and i see that even in the report you always uh, the report always clarifies that this did not begin as a research initiative that it was an intervention to help when there were groups that were in need so for an effort of this nature where did the thought to put out data come in and wh- why did you make that choice it was a very conscious choice i think it was that was a very political choice and the reason why we say it's a political choice is because it's important to build a public discourse around what is happening it is important to build public consciousness on what is happening it is important to understand that an entire class of people in the country have been completely let off the hook by the union government by the state machinery so to these are fundamental democratic questions and it's important to a do advocacy around it to say that okay this is the reality please act mm-hmm. this is the reality we need to push for let's say more uh, universalizing of rations which has been demand right from the first time but it never got universalized the fact that we had four times more the buffer stock the amount of rations that are there in the food corporation of india go downs is four times what the buffer stock norms mandate and yet the union government has been hesitant in making rations universalized to people saying whoever wants it take it and the, the the idea was that to push the government to act to push the courts to see what the reality is to see if the courts can intervene and take suomoto cognizance and push the government to act on these things so i think it could be multifold to say that okay we wanted to uh, bring out these fundamental questions democratic questions for people to know okay this is what the reality is for the media to also realize that okay this is what the reality is tell the true story for the government to take action and for the courts to, to reprimand the government for not taking action 
So I think these are, we were just doing whatever is within the ambit of democratic engagement. And it was our, in a way, it's our duty because we were just merely playing an intervening role here. And uh, it's our responsibility to, to highlight the issue if we are seeing what we are seeing. Right. And, and as a follow-up to that, we also saw while you were putting out this information to highlight that this was the situation as you uh, could point out was unfolding on the ground. We also saw the government, particularly in the parliament, states that uh, that they have no data on, on the suffering that the migrant worker groups had suffered in terms of deaths that had occurred due to um, traveling back home. So how do you respond to the government sort of raising its hands and saying, sorry, we don't have data on some of these things? Yeah, it just, again, it goes on to show the, the lack of care, the lack of compassion, the lack of adherence to why they have been elected in the first place. There, it's again, if it boils down to complete lack of accountability for the decisions that you take. Because of the presence of social media, because of it could not be hidden. We all saw how the workers were walking on highways. We saw many of those pictures are still very stark about hunger, etc. So mm-hmm. the fact that it's incredible that despite what we saw, despite the scale of what we saw, people in the parliament had the audacity to say that we don't know. We There is no data on how many people died on the train, how many people died, whereas civil society uh, there were, uh, I think, three or four people, Kanika, Tejesh, and Aman. There were three or four people who were keeping track through news reports on how many people were dying due to the lockdown. Had it not been for their work, we would not know the number of deaths that happened. Exactly the same thing has unfolded in the second wave now. So many deaths are getting underreported, and it's, uh, it's very sad. It shows the lack of attention to dignity that every individual deserves. And it's again, it's against Article 21 of the Constitution, which says right to life with right to live with dignity. And I I would say lacks and crores of people's Article 21 has been snatched away by the union government. And it's just not fair. If everyone, every of those migrant workers were in a position to file a case, we would have crores of petitions floating in the Supreme Court today. Each one saying my Article 21 has been dropped. But unfortunately, that's a utopia. Right. And I'm also reminded of how, uh, I think, again, it was in one of the Swan reports that it's a fallacy to think of this situation as a choice between lives and livelihoods. Thinking about health and non-health concerns, it is in fact very much a question of life versus life. And even if their crisis is not of a health nature, their life and dignity is definitely uh, taking a hit. So with this experience of having seen two waves of this pandemic and predictions of perhaps another one coming up soon, what do you feel are immediate steps that the governments, whether it's the union government or the states, that what are steps that they need to take both to address the losses of the past year that migrant workers have brutally faced and in preparation for the future? See, I think... First, once again, even now, first of all, I think Supreme Court has given some good orders in the migrant worker petition. I think the, 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 the final judgment came in uh, June this year, June 2021. So I think it's important to closely monitor how the state governments and the central government is responding to those orders that the Supreme Court passed. So I think that's a very critical exercise that potentially only civil society organizations can do and take up. So that's definitely one thing that needs to be done. 
that's it. I think there are registration of who a worker, who a migrant worker is and where they are. That is very critical. We have legislations like the Interstate Migrant Worker Act from 1979, through which we can make the employers in the host state accountable. But there is no clear-cut registration of who the employer is in a state. So, for example, in let's say they are in Bangalore, how many employers are employing workers from maybe even Karnataka or even other states? What is their contract? No, no one has a written contract. Uh, are they getting paid? Those kind of so putting in accountability structures around the employers is very very critical, and I think we have to learn from what happened last year that this is a time when that needs to be done the labor departments have to really step up their game to ensure that all the employers are registered and all the employees under their employers are registered em ensure that all the construction workers for example are registered under the bocw act building another construction workers act because there are provisions that you would get in that case then similarly, having many small scale employers are also not in a position to pay the workers. So it's important that the government, once again, the, the cash transfer bit is very critical. And it's the principle is very simple. Only if workers spend, only if a large section of people spend money, will there be a circulation of money in the economy. And only if there is circulation of money in the economy, with the growth of the economy. So I think just to boost aggregate demand, it's important that workers have some flexibility to spend. And we created a blueprint on what should be the mechanism of all these things. And it turns out that it's it's just, if, if the government institutes 3,000 rupees cash transfer for a period of six months to every registered worker, we are talking just two to two and a half percent of the GDP, which is nothing which the government can do definitely they have the fiscal space to do it so those things there is still time it's never too late to do the right thing as they say so that's something that can be done accountability mechanisms as i said earlier need to be put in for employers i think these two things and of course schools is a huge huge thing children's mm -hmm. education more than it's been more than 500 days 520 days i think that schools have not worked and i'm just coming from various places I'm seeing children who are just playing in the streets doing not able to do anything and their learning impairment is going to be a huge problem we are going to see a huge nutrition crisis coupled with the education crisis increase in child labor a lot of these things is is on the cards over the next few years the picture doesn't look particularly pleasant as from the current vantage point so I think opening up of schools is very critical Schools also become another space for children to access midday meals where they can definitely mm -hmm. get some much needed proteins through eggs. Mm -hmm. Those things need to start ASAP. We can't delay that anymore. So I think these are some, uh, and again, nutritional supplements for, for pregnant women. Uh, this mm -hmm. is something that needs, we need to go beyond what we are doing right now. Otherwise, we'll see an entire generation of people coming from marginalized communities being pushed more into the margins, which is not at all good for as a society from a constitutional point of view and even for the economy. Right. Yeah. Uh, here's hoping that uh, we see our governments sort of stepping in and addressing some of these important and immediate needs. And on that note, thank you so much, Professor Rajendran, for joining us today and speaking at length 
to discuss your work in rural development and particularly with swan it's been a pleasure learning from your work and your insights on on this issue and for listeners who might be interested we'll make sure to point you to some of the resources including reports from swan so that you can learn more about swan's work thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast this is shravya your host signing off and we will be back soon with another episode exploring how we can shape the vision of technology together